Welcome, welcome. How are you guys doing today? Okay, uh, my name is uh, Michael, and uh, I get to serve here as the youth director for all of our grades uh, 6 to 12 students. And uh, this is a, an honor and a pleasure to be with you guys this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew chapter 21. Uh, we're going to be in the first 11 verses there. And uh, this is such an interesting, interesting passage. Um, this last week, I've spent this, like, every second of every day thinking about this. And um, it's one of those passages where after you get away from it and you kind of sit back and, and sit and look at, you're just more in awe of Jesus. And my hope and intention is that you leave here today with that same kind of thought and idea that you would just be in awe of Jesus in the way that he works, the way that he does this whole act in such a symbolic way, and, uh, and that you just come appreciative and grateful and thankful for for this kind of a thing. Uh, let me just pray for us really quickly, and uh, we'll be able to get into this. Father, thank you so much for uh, just the chance to be here today, that you would allow us to learn, to understand you on a deeper level, that we would leave thankful and joyous at the work of your Son. Father, that we would just be so excited as we leave here today that we just get to know a deeper sense of who you are and that we would leave changed in such a tremendous way. So, Father, we love you. Jesus, I want to pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 21 is a really, really interesting passage um, because it does a lot of things that, that I hope that we get to understand. I, obviously, this has been preached plenty of times um, if you are someone who grew up in the church. And if you haven't, this is going to be a very interesting story for us. The reason for that being because this is one of the most integral parts of all of the gospel narrative. There are 11 stories in the gospels that are told throughout all four of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's only 11 stories that are told in all four. This is one of those stories, including the baptism of John, the feeding of the 5,000, Peter's profession of faith, the anointing by Mary, triumphal entry, which is this story, the Last Supper, the story of Gethsemane, the trials, the crucifixion, his burial, and then the resurrection. Those are the 11 core stories that we find in all four of the Gospels, and this begins to be one of those that really should rock the way that we think about Jesus. And this is very important. Um, recently, I just went to uh, a funeral, and uh, funerals are, are really weird, right? You hear a lot of weird, strange language. People are, are grieving and trying to think about the, the loss of a loved one. And one of the things that you hear in the, in, uh, the funeral is uh, a sentence kind of like, I feel like I've lost a, a part of myself, I feel like I've lost a part of myself. And the closest people to that individual are usually the ones that say that. Now, psychologists will tell you that that idea is actually true. As you begin to age and as you get older, you begin to more efficiently retain information. You begin to tell yourself, ah, oh, this is kind of useless. I don't want to remember this. I don't want to remember this. And you just kind of begin to remember the information or memories or the history of things that you find very, very important. But then you begin to do something very interesting is that you begin to use other individuals like their safety deposit boxes. You begin to say, I don't want to retain this information, but my, my wife, she's going to remember that for the both of us, right? So the code for the storage unit, ah, there's no need for me to remember that. I'll just let my wife remember that one. And, uh, and I use her kind of as that deposit box or a birthday or a name or a certain recipe or any piece of information that you don't want to remember you deposit into someone else. It might be your kids, it might be your spouse, it might be your parents, whatever it is, that's how we begin to work. You almost have this shared history. So what happens is when you lose someone who you've done that with, 
all that information, all of those memories, all of those things that you've deposited on them and depended on them for are now lost. So when you say a statement like, I feel like I've lost a part of myself, they would agree with you because that is what you have been doing. You've had the shared history amongst the people around you, the shared memory source or a, a, a shared version of the way that you remember things. That's not so different from the time of Jesus and our time today, right? You remember Remembrance Day? What would they do? They would bring in a veteran. That veteran had memories that we shared together as a culture. They would share those with us as young students, and we would remember and reflect and be joyous. That's what's going to happen here. Jesus is going to touch the strings of the shared history amongst his people in very different ways. Some of them are going to be very blatant. Some of them are going to be a little bit um, more laid back, and some of them more hidden, and maybe we've never understood those before. Hopefully, we begin to understand that Jesus is intentionally moving pieces in order for us to truly understand what he is going to do. So, Matthew 21, verse 1, this is what it says. Now, when they, Jesus and his disciples, drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, which is how we butcher it in English, to the Mount of Olives. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. This is the end of the road trip. Jesus has been traveling from the north to Jerusalem, which is where he wants to go to. Him and his boys have kind of gone through this travel, and now they have finally arrived. They are on the summit of the Mount of Olives, which is this, um, if you've ever been there, it's this kind of touristy place, and you have a great, great look at Jerusalem right ahead of you. It's this, um, if, if you're looking out, there's this deep, uh, steep kind of decline going down into the Garden of Gethsemane, and then this steep incline, and then you get to Jerusalem. It's a, it's, a, it's a vision that you get to see right away, this pathway that you have to take. It's kind of down, and then you go up again. Jerusalem is a city of about 50,000 people, and at this point, when Jesus is showing up, 150,000 people are also going to show up at the same time. Jerusalem is going to be very, very cramped. So Jesus shows up with his boys. They go to the Mount of Olives. They're descending upon Jerusalem, and all of this is beginning to happen all at the same time. It's a very interesting way of Jesus preparing something that's about to occur. Now let's go to verses 2 to 5. Look at what it says. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The foal of a beast of burden. So Jesus not only just arrives, he then goes and sends two of his disciples to go and get this this donkey, and I don't know how this kind of worked out, whether, you know, Jesus just kind of knew that the donkey was going to be there, or if it was one of those, like, Star Wars moments, this is our donkey, you know? I don't know what, what kind of worked or what happened at that point. I don't know if Jesus prepared this ahead of time. All I know is that he just went for this donkey. He goes, he gets it, and it's a very interesting moment because you never hear of Jesus riding an animal anywhere previously to this. Which makes you believe to think, okay, this is a very intentional action, this is something he's trying to accomplish. What is he trying to do? The disciples get the donkeys, they show up. And then Matthew says, the point of emphasis that I want you to understand of why this is occurring 
And then he does a quotation. This quotation is from Zechariah 9.9. This is what it says there. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's interesting for us that the main thing that Matthew wants to paint for us is the humility of Jesus right away riding this donkey. Humility. It's the major emphasis that Matthew wants to put on us. Humility, that the one who is coming and embarking onto Jerusalem is going to come in a very different way. Right, if you've heard this passage preached before, you might have understood that the Romans, when they would have come into a city, they would have gone into a massive parade, right? Trumpets, noise, they had people flying through horses. It was a big old thing. It was a celebration. It was a massive act. And then now you have Jesus showing up on a donkey. And yet what Matthew says is this is fulfilling something that remember, we have this shared history, and Jesus is intentionally pulling one of those strings for a reason. Because the person who was to come on the donkey was the long-awaited king that everybody was waiting for. Jesus goes, he grabs that donkey, he humbles himself, and he rides it on the way in. Now, this is where it gets very interesting. Is the point of the passage for us to say that the king came in a way that no one ever expected? Is the story trying to tell us, oh man, we never saw this coming. Jesus on a donkey, he rolled, oh man, mind blown right now. Is that the point? Or is there something else kind of going on here? Right, picture this, Jesus' boys go to the Mount of Olives, Jerusalem is in sight, this path is now ahead of us. Is he the only king who has done this? Is this the first time a king will take this path on a donkey to Jerusalem? No. It's a very interesting story in 2 Samuel 15 and 16. And it's another king. It's a downbeaten, it's a depressed, weeping king who finds himself in a very difficult situation. This king's name is David. His son has began a rebellion. He is a broken man crying on his way back to Jerusalem. In 2 Samuel 15, uh, verse 30, it begins to tell us the way that he embarks himself into this place. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. Here is this king, this amazing king who's done a lot of things, right? Here's a guy who, who sings songs, who puts people to sleep. And if, you, and if you try to ride that side of him, he's also the king who just kills lions, right? This is David. He's, he's, he's the man. And now he's going up to the Mount of Olives weeping because his worst nightmare is ahead of him. It's the fact that he has to war with his son, his very own kid, who he's loved and been with his whole time. And now he has to ascend onto the Mount of Olives and look at Jerusalem and say, this is where it's happening. My kid's there. This is not the best moment for me. He's broken as he goes to this place. 
And then chapter 16 gives us this very interesting passage about what begins to happen. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of uh, Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys, saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. And if you know the story, David goes, he rides the donkeys into Jerusalem. A war ensues between him and his son, and David comes out ahead. And not only does David have that son, but he has another son. The next king who will go on the line, Solomon. And when Solomon is being coronated to be the king, what does he ride on his way to the coronation? A donkey. Remember what we said. At the beginning of all this, Jesus is intentionally trying to pull strings of the shared history of his people saying, hey, listen, everything that you have been waiting for has now arrived. God's anointed king always arrives on the donkey. Humble. Humility showing to the furthest extent the natural rhythms of what it looks like for a king to come to Jerusalem is exactly what Jesus is doing in this moment. He tells his friends, go get me these donkeys. He rides on them. This, this passage goes up. And then look at how this continues further. Verse, uh, verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkeys and the colts and put, the, put on them their cloaks. And he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. So all of a sudden, what begins to happen is these guys get the donkeys, they put their cloaks on them, Jesus rides the donkeys, and then he begins to go towards the city. And a big mob all of a sudden begins to show up, and they see him, and all of these natural shared history moments begin to be realized. They go, oh, oh my goodness, this is, this is what we've been waiting for. The guy is showing up on the donkey to Jerusalem. And remember, 150,000 people are descending on the city from all different kinds of regions, right? All different geographies and all different ways of living life. And what's their first and natural movement for them to do? To take off their cloaks and to lay it ahead of the king who is arriving. I want us to just kind of think about this for a second. These are not the richest folk in the world. This might be their one good cloak. This might be the one good thing that they've traveled with the whole time that's keeping them safe. Keeping them warm. And what do they begin to do? A natural response of seeing the king of kings ahead of them, they throw it off like it's nothing and they lay it before him. It's a beautiful image when you begin to think about it. It's a beautiful picture of what happens when you see the king. And not only that, it begins to continue into a whole different way of doing things. Verse 9, and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. 
Hosanna is one of those kind of weird Christian words that we begin to use all the time, but we don't actually really understand. Hosanna is a, is a cry for help. It's a save us. So when Jesus is descending on this donkey and he's rolling up to Jerusalem, all of these people are yelling out. They recognize exactly what's happening right now. They're not confused. They're yelling out, save us, save us, son of David. What's that kind of giving you the image of? The one, the true king we have always been waiting for. Save us from what we have been expecting to be saved from. They're yelling out emphatically. They're yelling out dramatically. Save us. Be the one who does what we could not do. Now let's pause for a second and let's stop and let's kind of step back and go, okay, what is going on here? First of all, in the last 20 chapters, Jesus does not act this way. Have you noticed that? For the last 20 chapters, whenever Jesus does something really cool, he kind of tells everybody around him, shh. Don't say anything, just go off in peace. And what do all those people do? They never listen to him, right? They tell everyone, right? I, I have two eyeballs again. That, that guy did it, right? And Jesus is like, are you serious? Come on. That's been the natural rhythm. He's been playing this kind of game. Shh, shh, don't say anything. Quiet. He's kind of held this kind of low demeanor, this kind of introverted self where you begin to look at him and you go, he doesn't really want to draw a lot of attention. This is what scholars would call the messianic secret. He's trying to keep this secret from the masses. And then all of a sudden you get this picture of Jesus where he rolls up on a donkey. There's crowds yelling, king, save us, save us. And he kind of just trots right in, doesn't say a word. People are cutting off palm branches. It's a big old fat, like it's, it's crazy. And you go, this seems like a very different Jesus from what we've been used to. Why all of a sudden does he just kind of want to do this very public, extroverted thing right now? This doesn't, this doesn't seem like the Jesus that we've known. It's very interesting when you prepare something, right? When you prep something for other people to see, right? For myself, I grew up in a Spanish household, uh, and so there is one, I have one characteristic of the kind of Mexican food I want to go to. All right? The very first place I go to when I go to a Mexican restaurant and I want to get myself a taco is I go straight to the kitchen, okay? If I go to that kitchen, I want to be hearing two guys slinging Spanish to one another, predominantly talking about soccer, okay? If I hear that and the radio's on, I go, this is going to be a great meal, all right? That's my one characteristic. I don't care what the bathrooms look like. I don't care if there's cockroaches around. If there's two guys slinging Spanish, talking about soccer, and the radio's on, We're going to have a great time, right? That's what I care about when it comes to preparation. But when it's preparation to the masses, we begin to understand that there's very tiny details that are very, very important before we get there, right? Last year, uh, I got married, and uh, that is a crazy process. Why did nobody warn me about that, right? That's a a thing. So we're going, and me and my wife, uh, my now wife, before she was my fiance, we're kind of sitting there, we're talking, we're like, hey, how is this thing going to go down? And she's like, I don't know. And I'm like, okay, we're off to a great start. And so we begin to you know, try to prep for this thing. How many people do we want? How do we do all of these different things? In order for us to create a guest list, we did a draft, right? So I had the number one overall pick. We kind of just went through in different tiers. We drafted, it was amazing. 
I got everybody I wanted. And so they all kind of go, and this, it's the tiny little preparations. It's who's contacting the food, who's con contacting the venue, who's going to do the, the little invitations, or all of these different things. It's a lot of work. And in the middle of that, I remember I, I got stressed out. I'm like, no, I can't do this. I'm working a full-time job. I'm taking class at school. I'm trying to buy a house. I'm trying to get married. I am on full-blown, I'm going crazy mode. So all of a sudden, I'm one day going to Starbucks, and I'm telling my friend, I'm kind of venting, and this Starbucks lady stops me and goes, honey, it's going to be okay. You know, all the little details, she didn't talk, I don't know what this is. <laughs> all the little details you've been thinking of, if all of those goes wrong, you're the only one who knows. And I'm like, thank you, Starbucks lady. And she like gives me a hug over the counter. I don't know if that's company policy or whatever, but they, and she does that. And, and I came away from that and I'm like, man, like, you know what, we're good. And it's so interesting when the day comes and you're about to get married, all the prep kind of just don't think about anymore. You're up on stage, kind of something similar like this. You have, you know, your best friends right next to you. And, and you get to this moment, it's this moment. We're on the stage, you're looking at the doors, the music's going on, your friends and family are out there, and you're just staring at these doors. One thing's rolling through your mind. I know it was for me. Please be on the other side. No, I'm just kidding. It's, it's, this, it's this moment of what is about to happen changes everything. What's about to happen right now? makes everything different. That's what this is. It's the preparations have gone on for the last 20 chapters. Everything that Jesus wanted to intentionally do at those points, he's done. He's walking into Jerusalem and it's, it's that moment where the doors are closed. It's the big moment, it's, it's showtime is about to happen. And he's rolling in, and he gets to this place where he's like, man, it's, it's about to go down. We know these moments. That in the shadows, you kind of have to, you have to think and process, and you have to do a lot of things. Where it's preparing for, for the limelight in some senses. Even with people, every big public figure that you've ever thought of always has a time of preparation. They call this the ten years of silence where someone who you now know is famous or a big deal had 10 years where they were in obscurity and no one cared about them. It's this time of preparation for, for showtime. One of my favorite movies is uh, Ocean's Eleven, right? Uh, it's, it's, this, it's this amazing cast of people, right? George Clooney, Silver Fox himself, right? You got Matt Damon, you got Brad Pitt, you got all of these, Bernie Mac, you got all these guys, and the whole thing is they're gonna try and rob these, these three casinos. And they go together and they prepare for a long, 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 long time. And all of a sudden their whole demeanor shifts when? When it's showtime. Jesus is doing the exact same thing. This is showtime. It's funny that we've spent a couple years in 20 chapters, and the next eight chapters that are ahead of us happen in seven days. This is showtime, where Jesus is rolling up with a crowd of individuals who are yelling, save us, O king, save us, O king, save us, O king. This is showtime. 
This is public. This is, he's making himself known. It's dramatic as he goes to Jerusalem. And this is a problem. Why is this a problem? Because they're saying the king has arrived. The king is here. The leader we've always been waiting for. Jerusalem already has leaders. They have the chief priests. Not only do they have that, they actually have a Caesar running Jerusalem. And now you have a mob of people, I don't even know the amount, hundreds of people yelling out, the king has arrived, the king has arrived. That's how you get yourself killed. That's how you get yourself killed. And now it all makes sense. He's plucking on the strings of history. And it's interesting to note, where's the very first place he goes to? Where's the first place he goes to? The synagogue. And what does he do at the synagogue? Flips the tables. Crowd of people yelling, the king has arrived. And what's Jesus' first action? The clash of kingdoms. Save us. Save us. Save us. It's like walking in with a hundred people to the White House and saying the president has arrived. You have to understand how important this moment is for Jesus. That when he arrives to this, this is a big deal. It's dramatic and it's important that it's dramatic. It has to be. He's trying to prove a point. There's a story of a, of a pastor when he was a little kid. He was growing up in the South and uh, segregation was, was still very, very prominent. He's an, an usher, probably 12, 13 years old, and he was told by the pastor to not let any uh, black individuals into the auditorium, into the sanctuary. So this young boy is, is 12, 13, he's kind of handing out programs and the bulletin or whatever, and he sees this family walk in. It's a, it's a, it's a black family, and they walk up to him, and now he's kind of caught in a moment. Do, do I listen to what the pastor told me? Do I kind of just do what I think I should be doing? And, then he kind of defaults to doing what the pastor says, and so he's about to stop them and, 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 and take them up to the balcony because this is what's happening. And at that moment, he sees his mom. He looks over, and his mom is storming down the middle corridor, pushes the son away, grabs the mother by the hand, and very, very dramatically stomps her way down the auditorium, sits them down in the front row, and sits with them. It's dramatic. It has to be, because there's a point that needs to be made. Something is about to happen that will change everything for everyone. Why? Because the king has come. The king has arrived. People are shouting at him, save us, save us, king. It's a very, very interesting scene. And then it ends like this. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this? And the crowd says, this 
is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee? It's the question we should all be asking of the king who approaches. Who is this? One of the most important questions you will ever ask yourself. So now that all of this has kind of come into play, there's a lot of information here. What, is, what does this kind of mean for us? So there's three things from this passage that I really want to make known for you guys. One is do not look for man's popularity. How much of our life is dictated because we want people to like us? We want to be seen well in front of our peers. Maybe it's because we own a business. And networking is the most important thing for us. And the way that they see us depends on the way that they see our brands or, or our company. And we kind of do things a bit different from how we naturally look or, or the whole Jesus angle of our life doesn't really come out because we really want those people's praise. We're addicted to man's popularity. This is a very interesting moment because as most people who communicate this text will tell you, in a couple days, these people are going to be shouting a very different tune. The popularity of men is fickle. It's fleeting. It comes and it goes. Is that the reason why Jesus does what he does? Because the people are hyping him up and he's getting excited. No. He's doing it in spite of the shouting, in spite of the cries. He has the plan. He's been preparing. He showed up regardless of the crowd. And let's just ask ourselves a question for one second. How often do we make decisions based off the crowd? To be honest with ourselves, how often do I make major life choices because I want to appease the people around me and haven't never for one second thought about the way that Christ or God thinks about the situation? Have we ever taken the time to stop in our day, at the beginning of our day, and just go, God, allow me to do what pleases you? It changes everything for us. Do not do things for men's popularity, for man's popularity. The second is this. I want us to look in the intentionality of the king. The way he approaches the Mount of Olives, the way he reproduces the rhythms of the kings previous to him who God has anointed. God's kings always show up this way. Look at the people giving up their cloaks. Look at the way that he rides the donkey in. Look at how he sends his disciples. Look at where he intentionally goes right off the bat. Look at when he is arriving to the city. All of these things that Jesus has planned way before time. And what we begin to do is we begin to very sermonize the text. We begin to say, God, God had a plan. Jesus had a plan when he arrived. And we begin to do things like, Jesus has a plan for you. No, let's just stop. Let's, let's take that away for a second and just look at what happens. He shows up intentionally with a plan of how he wants to go about doing this. Not so it can transfer to, oh, this is about me and God has a plan for me. No, 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 no. Look at the intentionality of how he arrives to save us.
Look at how intentionally Jesus arrives to the city where he knows he's going to die. This is that moment where I talked at the beginning that leaves you in awe and, and just gives you thankfulness and joy in your heart when you reflect and go, he planned this. He meant every action and every word and every movement. He did this because he came to arrive to die. He came to do something because the cries of the crowd, save us, save us, O son of David, the Messiah, the one to come, the true king, please. And he has. He did show up intentionally then treat us like an afterthought but for a very reason and the last point I want to make for us which I hope we truly understand is that we must realize that the king comes to them just as he does to us folks the king has arrived he has shown up. He has done what he needs to do. And we are all living in the light of that moment. What they are waiting for, when they say, God, save us. Save us. We are no longer expectant of that future. We are living in it. The most desperate cry of these individuals is to be saved. And you and I are sitting in chairs right now living in that reality. How, how, how much greater can life actually be? That we're not waiting for the king to come. The king has come. We're not waiting to be saved. We are saved. We're not waiting and expecting for what he is going to do. He has done what he needs to do. And now we live in the light of that. So can we please start acting like it? Please, as followers of Jesus who live in light of what this moment represents, allow us to be joyous. Allow us to be excited for the world to look at us as followers of Jesus, not as divided or people that judge others outside of what this room looks like. Allow us to be reflective of the joy and the gratefulness and the thankfulness in response to something like this. That for every one of us, he has come. He showed up in a way whether we recognize it or not. There's a pastor, his name is uh, John Piper. He has a son, and his son kind of went off and didn't want anything to do with church as he, he grew up. His name was Abraham. And uh, looking back at, at his life, Abraham writes this letter, and I, and I want you guys to, to, to hear this for a second, of how the king shows up to an individual. He says this, When I was 19, I decided I'd be honest and stop pretending I was a Christian. At first, I pretended that my reasoning was high-minded and philosophical, but really I just wanted to drink gallons of cheap sangria and sleep around. Four years of this, and I was strung out, stupefied, and generally pretty low. 
especially when I was sober or alone. My parents, who are strong believers and who raise their kids as well as any parents I've ever seen, were brokenhearted and baffled. I'm sure they were wondering why the child they tried to raise right was such a ridiculous screw-up now, but God was in control. One Tuesday morning before 8 o'clock, I went to the library to check my email. I had a message from a girl I'd met a few weeks before, and her email mentioned a verse in Romans. I went down to the Circle K, bought a 40-ounce can of Miller High Life for $1.29. I went back to where I was staying, rolled a few cigarettes, cracked open my drink, and started reading Romans. I wanted to read the verse from the email, but I couldn't remember what it was, so I started at the beginning of the book. By the time I got to chapter 10, the beer was gone, the ashtray needed emptying, and I was a Christian. The best way I know to describe what happened to me that morning is that God made it possible for me to love Jesus. When he makes this possible, and at the same time gives you a glimpse of the true wonder of Jesus, it is impossible to resist his call. The king has come. The king has done what he needed to do. And he showed up. Let's be joyous of that. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, today and the chance we have of opening your word and just reflecting on it. God, that we would realize the popularity of men is fickle, that you are intentional with the way that you came to save us, and that you have come for us together and us individually, that you will make yourself known in, in strange ways, and God, that we would just be changed by that fact. So, Father, we thank you. We love you. Just want to pray. Amen. Thanks, guys.